You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, authors, and museum directors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are with Benjamin Rubin, Southern historian, and our topic is the Battle of Fishing Creek. Welcome, Benjamin. Thanks. Before we get started, we want to give a shout out to one of our affiliates, southerncampaigns.org which specializes in peer review articles and other resources like pension applications from the American Revolution. Uh, they do a great job over there and it's a great resource for people like yourself and, and authors to, to do research uh, on the American Revolution. So tell us, tell us about the Battle of Fishing Creek. Yeah, so I think the, the place to start the story is with the meeting of Thomas Sumter and General Horatio Gates which happens in August of 1780 as Gates' army is marching south. And, of course, they are coming from two very different worlds, these two men, right? Gates, the hero of Saratoga, you know, all that, although that's debatable, but uh, certainly that was his reputation at the time. He had established himself in the northern campaigns in kind of the, one of the biggest battles of the war. He is this hero, this darling of Congress who had been placed in command of the Southern Army and is now marching south with a large force of um, Continentals, the, the Maryland and Delaware line primarily. And Sumter at this point had already been operating over the past two months or so in South Carolina and actually a little bit in North Carolina as well, you know, resisting the British occupation. There had been very little continental presence, actually really no continental presence in uh, the Carolinas since Charleston had fallen and Buford had been defeated at, uh, at the Waxhaws, which happened in May. And so, you know, I think for Sumter, as for uh, a lot of the other partisan commanders, there is this sense that they had been carrying on the war, that they had been resisting the British occupation and had even scored some victories at places like Ramsar's Mill, you know, Hanging Rock, you know, places like that. Uh, Huck's defeat certainly was, was a major morale victory for the partisans. And so their feeling was, you know, that, that they had been doing all of this work and resisting uh, the British occupation. And now all of a sudden, you know, continental forces are moving back into the South and kind of reasserting their supremacy. Gates also has a meeting with, with Francis Marion uh, around this same time where Marion comes into his camp with his, you know, very small, very ragtag band of, of followers, and Gates essentially sent him away. This is not the reception that, that Sumter gets, though. Sumter, you know, comes in with significantly more men than, than Marion had, and, uh, you know, I think Gates... To some extent, saw some some value in what Sumter was bringing to the table, and so you know, the two of them decide to to operate more or less together. And in fact, Gates is even willing to detach to Sumter 200 Maryland Continentals under Thomas Wolford from the Fifth Maryland Regiment, and also two small grasshopper guns, which in hindsight probably would have been useful for him to have had at the Battle of Camden, but, you know, certainly for Sumter, 
you know, especially coming off of the Battle of Rocky Mount, where his lack of artillery had, had cost him the day, this is definitely uh, a new opportunity for him. And so, you know, he sees this as an opportunity to do things that maybe he had not been able to do up to that point. That's a fascinating intro into this, uh, this battle. It's interesting you bring up Rocky Mount. The precursor to Fishing Creek included going back to Rocky Mount. And, and then what did Gates want Sumter to do when he broke him off from the main army? Yeah, so um, Gates is using Sumter um, in a fashion that, that Continental officers often used uh, the militia. And in fact, uh, a similar way to how Gates had used the militia when he was fighting in the Saratoga campaign, which was basically to use them as a force behind, behind enemy lines, right? And so by sending Sumter sort of around behind the British army, he creates all kinds of strategic problems for Cornwallis. He creates uh, challenges to Cornwallis' supply lines and hopes to, to complicate his life. Perhaps, you know, this is going to cut off British supplies. Perhaps it's going to force Cornwallis to detach a part of his army to go face Sumter instead of being present at the battle. And in fact, Sumter's move around behind the British at Camden is in fact going to deprive Cornwallis of reinforcements at the, the Battle of Camden, although not maybe in exactly the way they would have anticipated. Going down a little rabbit hole here, I know that he dismissed Marion and his men, but he dismissed them with an order to go interject themselves into the supply lines between Camden and, and Charleston and take care of all the boats sure. uh, back up and down the Santee. And I know that perhaps he, he also told William Davy, a cavalryman out of Charlotte, or from the from that area that would go back and forth between uh, Camden and Charlotte, and kind of hung and was the hero of Hanging Rock. I think he was he had told him to take uh, wounded Patriot soldiers from Hanging Rock and escort them back to Charlotte. So it's he's he's cooperating in a number of ways, or or, or bringing in these militia guys in a number of ways to operate outside of the regular army. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, Gates, the way that Gates interacts with the militia is maybe not as sophisticated as what we'll see uh, Nathaniel Green do a year later when he, you know, really, really uh, understands the value of these partisan forces and how they can coordinate with the Continental Army. But it's, it's based on the same theory, right, which is that you keep a, a strong regular army in the field to challenge the the british main army and then you use these militia forces to create headaches for the british and deprive them of the ability to concentrate uh against your main force and gates certainly understood uh the theory there now you know perhaps it's a little perhaps it's a little unfair you know i tend to be of the opinion that nathaniel green was a much a much higher quality commander than horatio gates and i think most historians would agree but at the same time, Green had a lot more time when he took command of the army to develop these kinds of relationships. Gates is really moving you know, toward combat from the moment he arrives in the South. And so he's kind of putting together these networks fairly ad hoc. And nevertheless, he is, you know, as you mentioned, with Marion, with Sumter, with Davy, he is finding things for these people to do that you know, will be useful to the campaign. All right, so he meets with he meets with Sumter and he sends him off with a 
He breaks off several units to send with Sumter. Where does he send them? So Sumter proceeds basically around the British forces uh, at Camden. And his goal, you know, not sure whether this is specifically the assignment that Gates gave him or whether this is kind of his idea of what to do with these forces, but he heads toward Cary's Fort which is uh, just across the Watery River from Camden. And he, you know, it's an important link in the British supply lines. Sumter, you know, his goal is to to capture it and, you know, ultimately to break this link in British supply chain and um, force them to react. Now, from his personal perspective, it probably also helps that you know, Carey's Fort is going to be full of weapons. It's going to be full of ammunition. It's going to be full of food. All the things that Sumter has been operating without, right? And again, for the first time, he's got cannons with him. And so I think probably Sumter is looking for a target that he wouldn't otherwise be able to take, right? He he has been developing this campaign over the summer. And he's been kind of limited in what objectives he could attack because he didn't have artillery. And so I think Sumter sees himself as being in this position to kind of finally get some of the things on his wish list that he had not been able to operate against for the rest of the summer. That's interesting. Uh, When you say that Cary's Fort had food, uh, I think in our modern vernacular, we're thinking, okay, the (laughs) army, they had a whole bunch of sea rations and they had... uh, you know, maybe they had grain or something. What what kind of food did they have at Cary's Fort that was part of their supply? Yeah, so, so, I mean, some of it would have been that, right? Some of it would have been kind of non-perishable uh, stored food products, whether that's grain or um, alcohol is, uh, you know, liquor is a, a very valuable commodity. But most of what we're talking about when we talk about food is essentially food on the hoof, right? It's, it's livestock which would travel with the army to be killed as needed. Um, and that generally provided the meat. So, you know, both for transportation reasons and for preservation reasons, it's very hard for an 18th century army to, you know, transport a lot of prepared food. There's only, only so much you can preserve. There's also only, you know, you're limited by the wagons that you have. And so the most logical way to move food around in the 18th century is to move it around while it's alive and kill it as needed. And so one of the things that Sumter hopes to gain at uh, Cary's Fort is, you know, access to uh, herds of livestock that would have been there. So they they turn into drovers is what you're telling me. They go from soldiers to drovers (laughs) if they win the battle at Cary's Fort. Right. Um, And this is, you know, this is an important piece of, you know, 18th century warfare, you know, when we talk about armies moving through the countryside, a lot of what's moving with them is, you know, literally their food. And Sumter also, you know, from Gates's perspective, again, his army is moving uh, quickly. It is, you know, seeking battle with the British as quickly as possible. And Gates, you know, had not taken the time to establish uh, strong supply lines back to his supply bases, which were in North Carolina. And so, you know, Sumter bringing uh, a large herd of livestock into the Continental camp would be, you know, kind of a, um, a life-saving move as well. It, it would have alleviated a lot of Gates's problems. So 
when did they leave the presence of Gates and start heading to Carrie's Fort? So Sumter moves out of uh, Gates's camp on August 14th with his own South Carolina militia as well as contingent of North Carolina militia. Um, the total in his militia force adding up to about 800 men plus the roughly 200 Maryland Continentals and the two guns. So they leave camp on August 14th heading down the west bank of the Watery River to Watery Ferry, which is the the ferry that's occupied by Carey's Fort. What did, what did Carey's Fort look like at that time? Do you know? Um, it would not have been... We're not talking about a palisaded... No. You know, lots of entrenchments and that sort of thing. No, generally these backcountry forts uh, that the British threw up when they you know moved through an area would have been simple earthworks you know maybe a couple of gun emplacements but mostly uh, parapets for men to fire out of um, and it, it would have been you know open air um, and not very big well certainly because you have a lot of cattle right in that, and that they need to graze out there it's not like right they're they're pinned up in a in a you know, fort, so to speak. It would it would have been a very small and uh, unimpressive uh, fort. I mean, a lot of times what the British did was that they would build like a palisade around a home. So they'd take over a house and they would fortify that house and then they would put a palisade around it. I don't know all the details about what exactly was at Carey's Fort, but there's a ferry there. So um, there probably would have been some kind of buildings to, to fortify. And then, you know, it would have been a very simple kind of ad hoc structure. Not getting into the actual battle of Carey's Fort, it was a fairly quick battle. Yeah. And uh, they, they pretty much overran them in no time. And in our preparation for this episode, you were saying that Sumter sent a memorandum or a letter or, or a, a message to Gates that he had, he had taken Carey's yes. Fort. Yes. Yeah. So there is a dispatch from Sumter to Gates. Uh, informing him that Carey's Fort had been taken um, and that uh, he would be proceeding back toward the army. And so the Battle of Camden happened the very next day. The very next day, yes. And we should also talk about the, the stroke of luck that sort of falls into Sumter's lap, which is not only did they capture the munitions and uh, food stores that they intended to capture, but as it happened, there were 200 British reinforcements from uh, the 71st Regiment of Foot, which had been sent to reinforce Cornwallis from 96. And um, Sumter ends up you know, intercepting them and taking them prisoner as well. Did they have baggage wagons with them as well? Uh, they would have, yeah. I mean, I'm just imagining he's coming back from Carey's Fort on the west side of the Watery River. He's going north. He's got his men, and he's having to do prisoner patrol, and he's having to do drover patrol. I mean, he's driving this cattle up there. They run into this other uh, contingent of British. They get them and their wagons. This is a huge train. It, it is, and it's a very slow-moving train, right? Um, which is important to think about because the, the way the partisans had generally operated up to this point was you know as mounted troops this is one of the reasons they'd been so successful sumter's command you know throughout the summer of 1780 was moving around on horseback they would dismount to fight they fought as infantry but they were generally moving around on horseback and so they were moving very very quickly now all of a sudden 
we have this, you know, this contingent of men who um, includes Continental Infantry, who are moving on foot. Uh, it includes two cannons, which move even slower. And then we have taken 200 prisoners, a whole drove of, um, you know, livestock, which moves even slower than that, and wagons full of munitions and supplies. And so, you know, this column would have been moving up the road at like one mile an hour, maybe. A snail's pace. Yeah. Especially considering that the Battle of Camden is happening right across the river. Right across the river at the same time, um, which at this point, Sumter doesn't actually know. He doesn't know that yet. Um, and so he imagines that he's moving up the west bank of the river. Um, you know, he's going to rejoin uh, Gates before any battle takes place. He's going to, you know, come into camp with all of these welcome munitions and supplies, as well as, you know, these prisoners. And then, you know, perhaps after that, you know, either go out on another assignment or maybe participate in the large battle that, that he knows is coming. Unfortunately for him, that battle is already happening on the other side of the river, and it is going to go very, very badly for Gates. I was in a previous episode, we were talking to Rick Wise and, uh, and some of the other historians out of Camden, and they talked about uh, they felt like Gates was not going to attack Camden. He was not going down there to lay siege to Camden. He was going down there to kind of wait on the, uh, on the periphery of that area and kind of draw, you know, these the British out of the uh, fortifications of Camden, but Cornwallis threw out, threw a big wrench in that uh, when he when he came out late that night and met Gates early in the morning. Yeah, on the on the fifteenth, and they hit in the dark of night. The two armies collided. Yeah, it's kind of actually a brilliant move on on Cornwallis's part because. You know what Gates is expecting is part of you know part of the reason that that um, Sumter is operating so close to the British camp is you know on on some level Gates kind of expects the British to react to Sumter and instead of reacting to Sumter um, Cornwallis moves out of Camden in the middle of the night and attacks Gates first thing in the morning, um, which is you know not at all what what Gates was expecting him to do. Right, so that's the 15th, 16th? The, the Carey's Ford is on the 15th. The Battle of Camden is early on the morning of the 16th. So, um, it act, so the, the first collision um, between the two forces actually happens in the middle of the night. Um, at, uh, you know, there's, there's a skirmish between the advanced, the advanced groups uh, of Cornwallis's army and Gates's army. Um, and then the, the armies are basically drawn up and the Battle of Camden happens at first light on August 16th. I'm sure that in Sumter's mind, he was thinking, well, Gates has between 3,500 and 5,000 troops. He certainly is going to be able to hold his own while we come up the west side of the Watery. Uh, right. Even without Sumter, Gates outnumbered Cornwallis two to one. Well, when Gates lost at Camden, that kind of left Sumter out there hanging. It, yeah, um, that's exactly the right way to put it. Uh, it. It very much changes the the calculus for um, for Sumter uh, when he receives word of Gates's defeat, um, and 
you know, all of a sudden, this goes from kind of a triumphant march, uh, you know, back to the army with spoils to, um, you know, flight, right? He, he needs to flee for the safety of the North Carolina border now.